greet you in Christ's name. It's good to be here this morning. The Sam Troyer study is busy this, this time of the year with Bible school preparation, and I'm getting excited about it. I, every year I think uh, I question whether we should go out again, and then the board calls sometime in April and wonders if we'd come, and then we consent to go, and then about December time, I start getting excited about it. And, and I'm excited this time. This is my testimony. It's really exciting to look forward to uh, spending a few weeks of intense teaching and uh, rubbing shoulders with some great staff out there and the excitement of young people. It's, it's a good thing to look forward to. One of the subjects that I'm teaching this year is the Gospel of Luke. And I decided this morning to share one of the lesson plans with you uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Let's bow our heads for a quick prayer again. Father, I just pray that this message this morning would bring honor to you. I thank you for each one that's gathered here this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us. We're here to... Look at your word together, and we want that word to, to speak, and that we would respond in a way that would be uh, God-honoring and that would uh, affect our, our lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The title for this morning's message is The Temptation. In his book, Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon, Michael Giglieri chronicles the nearly 700 deaths that have occurred in the Grand Canyon since the 1870s. And most of these deaths are, are accidents that happen at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Most of them, believe it or not, are air accidents. They're airplanes flying down in there and flying too low and crashing. Some of them are accidents when people have gotten down in and are boating the, the river and there's a flood or some other mishap there. Some of them are suicides. People think this would be a grand place to take their own life. But there are quite a number of them that are, that are pure accidents. People don't, are not being careful enough at the edge. And they ignore some of the warning signs that are posted there one example was a 38-year-old father jokingly trying to frighten his teenage daughter by leaping onto a guard wall. He flailed his arms as he pretended to lose his balance. Then he comically fell onto the canyon side onto a ledge he assumed was safe. But sadly, after ignoring numerous warning signs, he lost his footing and fell into the canyon. And then in 2012, an 18-year-old woman who was hiking on the North Rim Trail decided to venture off the beaten path to have her picture taken at a spot known as Inspiration Point. As she sat down on the ledge of the 1,500-foot deep canyon, the rocks gave away and she plummeted to her death. These deaths were not just tragic, they were also completely avoidable. Does anyone really want her or his last words before, ah? To be, look how close I can get to the rim without falling. 
I'm a very cautious individual. I'm a scaredy cat. We were talking the other evening. Uh, we had a family gathering, a uh, Christmas gathering with our family and about broken bones. And I, I've never had a broken bone. I, I'm just not that type of a person that takes risks that much. And uh, I think in regards to to sin and Satan and temptation, a cautious approach is very, very beneficial. I think we need to be careful. We don't know the dangers. And we don't need to go right up to the edge and, and prove that, in fact, we won't fall. That we won't yield to temptation. We need to be very much aware. And that's the focus of this morning's message, to raise awareness about temptation and Satan. It's a very real, it's a very real occurrence that's happening out there every day. Satan does not have our welfare in mind. He is angry. He is rebellious. He is, he is just, he's just wanting to, to bring us into, into failure. Just as he has failed, he wants us to fail. It's a little bit like somebody was saying that they were at a restaurant one evening and, and it was a nice, beautiful summer evening and the flies and bees were coming into where they were sitting at the table and and there's this one bee just kept flying around the table and they were wondering what to do with this thing. And, and one lady, she took her sparkling grape juice and opened up the cap and, and set it there. And the bee came in and crawled right down into the, the bottle of the, uh, the sparkling grape juice and she put the lid on it very quickly. That's the way Satan is doing. He doesn't, he, he brings temptation our way, not for our welfare. Not for anything good. He is there to trap us and to hurt us. And we need to be aware of his device. In our text today from Luke 13, Luke 3, I'm sorry, we break into the life of Jesus prior to beginning his approximately three years of ministry. He had just been baptized and the Holy Spirit had come down on him in the form of a dove. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Christ was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The Bible says, gives us the impression he didn't resist going. He always submitted to the will of his Father. And we're going to be reading here from actually Luke 4. I gave it as 3. It's actually Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. You can follow along in your Bible if you wish. I'm going to put the actual wording up on the screen here. Yes. It, it's, it's typical of it. Yes, it may not be the actual spot, but it is in that area. Yes. And Jesus, Luke 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And for forty days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. 
The setting here is a very remote one. Jesus is off in the desert area, just Jesus and the wild things in the rocks. There's maybe a cave. And he had had nothing to eat for 40 days. And this, is, this is physically possible uh, to do this, but he was very hungry at the end of 40 days. The devil was busy doing what Satan has always done, trying to get people to rebel against God and his claim in their life. And he was, his goal was to commit, get Christ to commit sin. And trying to, I believe, ruin his ministry before it really began. And the temptation, I don't know if Satan was there earlier or not, but these were the final temptation that Scripture records for us. They were the most fearsome and the most climatic, if you will. They tell the story of Jesus and they tell the story of Jesus' submission to the will of His Father. Jesus, it's hard for us to grasp, was 100% God and He was also 100% human. And in that humanity, He was being tempted. And He was learning total dependence on His Heavenly Father doing, during this time of physical limitation. Hebrews 2, you don't need to turn to this, says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then from Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In this temptation, in this time of temptation, Christ was willing to Trust God in His perfect plan. And the temptation came early on the 40th day of the fasting, as we mentioned earlier. And I can imagine Jesus sitting there maybe at the mouth of a little cave, wherever He was staying, looking out across the barren, uh, desert-like landscape. And there were rocks everywhere. And to our Savior, in the early dim morning light, those rocks probably had taken on a characteristic of bread. I don't know. But everything was beginning to look like bread, I think, at that point. He was hungry, not just any kind of old hungry. He was weak and down on his last bit of stored nourishment. The word that is used in the Greek text is pinao, which speaks of a pinching, severe toil and, ang and, and hunger, being famished. And it speaks of craving. The temptation was now to make things happen. And that's when Satan showed up. And I don't know, you know, if it was a, an image of Satan, the, the images that you would have people paint of Satan coming there with, with his, you know, his little horns and what have you, or if it was just something that, that, that Jesus saw in his mind's eye, I don't know. But the devil did very really come up to him and he said, you know, look, uh, if you are the Son of God, just command these stones. The stones that you're looking at, they can become food for you. 
if you are the Son of God. Get yourself something to eat. Why do you why should you keep depriving yourself? And the temptation to Christ was very real and not to trust God's plan anymore for him, but to strike out on his own, away from God's plan. And Jesus could have been saying, God, I've fasted long enough. Surely it would not hurt to take things into my own hands now. I have been patient so long. And the temptation was so strong. But Jesus, we know, submitted to his Father's will and plan. God, if you want me to fast some more before I begin my ministry, I will follow your plan. God, to follow you is more important than food, even now. And his response was, man shall not live by bread alone. And then the temptation takes another venue, if you will. The, the Mount of Temptation, which is physically in the uh, south, in the Judea area, north of Jerusalem, up in the wilderness there. And uh, it looks, overlooks the city of the plain of Jericho and out to the east. Luke 4, verse 5 says, And the devil took him up, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The temptation has taken, has moved from the religious world, if you will, up to the top of a mountain. And Satan takes him by the hand, whether literally, visually or not, I suspect he was visible. And he says, look, look out across the plains. See, see all these, these, the city of Jericho and out across there. Look at these kingdoms. You want to set up a kingdom? Here's your chance to do it. I have it. I can give it to you. You can have this kingdom. Think of the glory. Think of the power. Think of the nice things you could have. Think of all those people bowing down to you. But Jesus is not impressed with Satan's offer. And I see his response to Satan something like this. He says, you know, this... Is not God's kingdom that you're looking at. This is not the kingdom that I am going to be over. Not all these worldly pleasures and possessions. The kingdom of God starts in the hearts of lowly men and women who come to the end of themselves. God's plan is not this. They will worship me, but in another setting. And I see Jesus in his mind's eye looking ahead toward the future in heaven. And that's when you and I and all of God's kingdom will, in fact, bow down before the Son. And we will honor Him. And we will, He will receive our worship. But the earthly throne, this was not God's plan for Jesus. Now, what was God's plan for Jesus was a cruel cross. A cross of suffering and rejection. That was the plan. And He would do His Father's will. Next, the temptation takes another path. And the Gospels 
record these temptations in different orders. I don't know if you've ever noticed that Matthew and Luke are different. And here, Luke, we're going in the order that it is, that it is related in the Gospel of Luke. And reading from Luke 4, verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. In this temptation, or Jesus' response to this temptation, Jesus proved that he trusted God's timing. Did this literally happen? I believe it did. From all aspects, I believe that it actually happened. That, that Satan took Jesus up to the top of the temple. And I'm told that where they were probably on the parapet of the temple, that in fact there was some 400 foot drop down to the worshipers that were gathering in the early morning light. They were there to, for the early sacrifice and they were gathering around and they were getting ready to sacrifice. And standing up on the very top of this um, pinnacle of the temple, Jesus whispers, goes over to Satan whispers and looks over at Jesus. He says, jump, jump. Why don't you jump? Just think what a kind of an impression you would make if you would jump down and jump right into the midst of these people. And because God is going to promise to protect you, He's going to put His arms under you as you fall and you won't be hurt. You'll stand right up in front of these people and they will be so impressed with you. You'll make a grand entrance. Prove it that you can trust God to keep you from being harmed in this jump. You want to get your ministry off to a good start. Go ahead, jump. Jesus' response, as we know, is that don't tempt the Lord your God. God has His timing, and it's not now and in this way. I come as a lowly teacher, not a showman. Don't tempt the Lord your God. My message this morning is about rebellion. As a youngster, I remember seeing the picture from the 1968 Olympic meet in Mexico City. It made a huge impression on me. I don't know how old I was when I first saw this picture. But this picture is of two African-American athletes in 1968 that took the podium after their success in running. The two athletes were Tommy Smith and John Carlos. In the medal ceremony, they both stood on the stands. One was the gold medal winner and the other uh, brass, I think. And the Australian is the third person there on the picture who won the silver medal. But the two black men raised their fists during the national anthem. While the national anthem was being played, the United States, the Stars and Stripes were basically 
raised and the national anthems, anthem was being played and, and uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos did like this. They raised their fist. To me, that, the symbolism of that um, is rebellion. I am going to stand up in here and show rebellion. And I don't know what you think of as rebellion. What are the word pictures that come to your mind when you look at rebellion? For us growing up, it was long hair. I don't know if that's a symbol of rebellion anymore or not. But it was long hair or it was doing your own thing in different ways, insubordination, confrontation. In most, most cases, rebellion is a very... It's a very uh, unpleasant thing, especially when you are the person that's being rebelled against. I remember in our home, my older brother was rebellious, and it hurt me terrible to see that rebellion. But this morning, I want to speak of rebellion in a positive light, not in the negative light. I want to speak of it in, in the light of that we are not condemned to follow the temptation of Satan in our lives. We must resist the devil. We must rebel against what he's trying to do in our lives. So I'm going to be looking at rebellion as a positive thing. We are to rebel against Satan's influence and to submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil, the Bible says, and submit to God. So we're going to talk just a bit about resistance and how Christ accomplished that in his temptation, and how we accomplish it in our resistance to temptation. Three areas that we want to look at this morning, and these would correlate to the three temptations that we see in Luke chapter 4. The first one is, you can't have my body, it belongs to God. This is our statement to the, to the devil. You can't have my body, it belongs to God. Number two, I don't need your recognition. My ambition is to serve God. And number three, I don't need your things. Everything I have belongs to God. Those three areas we want to cover this morning. The first one then is you can't have my body. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Satan was appealing to the need that Jesus had for food. Very legitimate need, physical need that he had. He'd been fasting for 40 days. There's nothing wrong with eating, is there? No. That's a natural inclination that we have. We need nourishment. What was wrong with Christ turning the stones to bread? I don't know if you've had that question. What would have been wrong with Christ just saying, okay, it's time now, let's, let's turn one of those stones laying out here into bread so that I can eat. What about listening to music? Nothing wrong with that. God gave us years to hear. It's a personal choice, isn't it? Nothing wrong with, with sex, is there? Why should there be restrictions placed on sex? Isn't it natural? 
Why shouldn't I do whatever I wish with my body? Isn't it mine after all? A quote from William Laud of Leadership Magazine. He says, Our souls may inflict infinite hurt and be rendered incapable of all virtue merely by the use of innocent and lawful things. What is more innocent than rest and retirement? And yet what is more dangerous than sloth and idleness? What is more lawful than eating and drinking? And yet what more destructive of all virtue than sensuality and indulgence? It is in the right and pudent prudent management of ourselves as to these things that the art of holy living chiefly consists. What should I say to Satan when he says, do this? We know Satan's plan is never good. It's a sinister one. What looks innocent really isn't. He never wants what's good for us. He's always trying to undermine God's plan for me. Why should I rebel against Satan's plan? I have four points I believe that I'm going to be making here. The first one is, there are always consequences for the way I use my body. Why should I resist Satan's plan for the use of my physical body? Because of the consequences of following Satan's plan. Be not deceived, Galatians 6 says, God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are always consequences to the way I use my body. There will always be consequences. Does God forgive when I commit sin? Yes, He does. Does he take away the consequences? No, he doesn't. There would be many people who can testify to the fact that, yes, I have received full forgiveness for the way I've mistreated my body. Will I still suffer consequences? Yes, I will. Absolutely, there are always consequences. That's reason number one. Number two, my body doesn't belong to me. I think, well, yeah, it does. No, it doesn't. Once I became a Christian, my my body no longer is mine. Scripture is very clear that I've surrendered. When I gave my heart to Jesus, He got my body as well. And my body is to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now living in here in my body. And my body, my physical body, my hands, my feet, my eyes, my everything doesn't belong to me anymore. It's, It's now been bought. Christ has bought me out and I am no longer the ruler of my body. And I was going to read from 1 Corinthians 6, but for the sake of time, I won't this morning. He's basically saying, all things are lawful for me, but I I won't be brought under the power of anything because I am now under God's control. My body is now God's. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Nothing else will drag you down into the depths of hell like giving up my body to the sins of the flesh. Satan knows that. And my body needs to be kept pure for God. Number three, God cannot use a body given over to indulgences. 
If we're given over to physical indulgences, God has a terrible time, has a difficult time getting a hold of us and using us for His glory. If I take my body and I'm, let's say just use the example of one that applies probably to all of us, is overeating. If I am a big overeater and I live for food, God has a terrible time getting a hold of me because I am so devoted to, to eating. He can't use a person who is abusing his body and overeating or drinking or uncontrolled laziness or overabsorption in sports or a preoccupation with the opposite sex. If, my, if I am not controlling my body and using it in, in, in a way that, that God is, is God honoring, he can't get a hold of me the way he wants to. Don't you know, Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So... Our body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. And God can't use a body given over to indulgences. Number four, God has a plan for the way we use our bodies. He does. And it's the one that will bring us lasting satisfaction. It's the one that will save us from recrimination. If we go the way of Satan. So you can't have my body. That's Jesus said to Satan. He said, you can't have it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going with God's plan, not my own. Number two, I don't need your stuff. This is what Jesus said to Satan, in effect, up on top of the mountain. He said, I don't need your stuff. You can take your stuff and stuff it. I don't need it. One of the bigger temptations that we face is the thing with stuff. Satan is asking us to give our soul, give up our soul in order to get things. And many, many of us have done that. We've, given, we've sold our soul to the devil in order to gain more possessions. And it's a terrible trade-off. It's a terrible trade-off. Now you say, that's drastic. I would never do that. Yeah? Yeah, maybe. How much have we shortchanged God in order to gain material wealth? Second point I'd like to make under this is that it ends up being a subtle bowing to Satan. No, we would never go and bow and worship Satan. Literally. But many have done it in order to gain the world's goods. The third point I have under this, can Satan deliver on his promise to give us stuff? If we sell out to him, can he deliver? And does he deliver? And my answer is yes. He does. He can. He can, he can give us these things. If we sell ourselves out to gain material wealth, if we sell ourselves out to gain prestige or whatever else we are selling ourselves out Satan can deliver on those promises. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. He doesn't always. He can't always. But in many cases, he can. 
Oh, what a price to pay when we figuratively bow down in order to gain material stuff. Our relationship to God will suffer. Our family will suffer. Our health will suffer. Our church will suffer. Our usefulness in God's kingdom will suffer. And many times our own soul. First Timothy 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then a verse or two out of Mark 4, which is the, in the context is, is the parable of the sower. It says, Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I read the fable of the Skylark's Bargain, and you've probably heard me maybe share it before. The Skylark's Bargain tells the story of a young Skylark who discovered one day a man would give him worms for a feather. He made a deal, one feather for two worms. The next day, the lark was flying high in the sky with his father. The older bird said, You know, son, we skylarks should be the happiest of all birds. See our brave wings. They lift us high in the air, nearer and nearer to God. But the young bird did not hear, for all he saw was the old man with worms. Down he flew, plucked two feathers from his wings, and had a feast. Day after day, this went on. Autumn came, and it was time to fly south, but the young skylark couldn't do it. He had exchanged the power of his young wings for worms. And that is the constant temptation in our life to exchange wings for worms. What was Satan's, what was Christ's response to Satan in this temptation? He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That is the command to us also. Not to worship other things, not to worship stuff, but to worship God. The final temptation or category of temptation that I want to talk about this morning is the need for recognition. And I think that's roughly maybe what the temptation was to Christ on the top of the temple roof. Satan was... Um, tempting him regarding his need, his natural inclination to be recognized, to want recognition. And I rebel against Satan's temptation by basically telling him, I don't need your recognition. I don't need it. My recognition comes from God. My recognition comes from pleasing God, from worshiping Him. I don't need the world's recognition. I don't need it. It's nice. It's beautiful. It's pleasant, but I don't need it. There's a strong human need for recognition. I like to be recognized and to be noticed. I like for people to look up to me. I want the respect of those around me. 
And there's almost no limit that some folks will do for recognition. Years and years spent practicing and working toward recognition. Scrimping and saving and working long hours to have something to show in the end. Years and years practicing in art or music for a short time in the limelight. Want to be recognized. The question I'm going to leave somewhat open-ended. Is it wrong to make your place in the world? Is it wrong to work hard to have some achievements in our lives? Is it wrong to, to be incentivized by doing well in life? Jesus was tempted by Satan. He says, go ahead, show the world just who you are. Go ahead, show the world that you are someone special. Don't wait for God. Third point I'd like to make under this heading is God wants us to place Him at the front of our lives. To seek His approval above all. When we place ourselves first, it leads to pride in our ministry. A quote from a James D. Berkeley. He says, Raw ambition pours sand in the ministry gears and forces the machinery to produce an unholy product, human pride. A striking mark of holy ambition is that it elevates Christ and not the ambitious striver. David Watson in Leadership Journal says, The Christian who is ambitious to be a star disqualifies himself as a leader. Raw ambition, not tempered by worship of God, pours sand in the gears of ministry. And it produces an unholy product called pride. God wants us to put Him first. We need to wait on God. God's timing, God's plan for us is the best. It's so hard to trust Him to work. It's so hard to wait on His timing. God, I've waited long enough. God, I'm getting nowhere fast. God, I'm going to take things into my own hands. And when I was thinking of that, I thought of the, the, the great man of God, David, in the Old Testament. David was a man who had to wait. He had been anointed king, but years and years he had to run for his life. He had to wait. And I'm, I'm sure that in his mind's eye, God, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? I'm running like a criminal for my life and you have anointed me king. Why do I have to do this? And he had opportunity to take things in his own hands. But he said, no, I'm, I'm going to follow God's plan. A few verses from Psalm 25. I, I believe these are the words of David, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We dare not tempt God by taking things in our own hands. We need to listen to Jesus' response to Satan, where he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Just a quick recap of the message this morning. I wanted I was attempting to make a case for rebellion against Satan and his temptations. 
rebellion towards Satan and submission toward God. You can't have my body. It belongs to God. You can't, I don't need your recognition. My ambition is to serve God and I don't need your stuff. Everything that I have belongs to God. I want to close the message with just a, reading a couple of verses from 1 Peter 5. You don't need to turn there, just listen up. This, I believe, encapsulates the message this morning. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. May I bless you this morning. We'll call for a song.